2,000 troops get to work to sort out Britain's worst ever floods. The UN's desperate attempt to get refugees out of Syria. Over winter, I spoke to families who'd actually melted snow um, so that their children would have water to drink. Cyprus talks, why has it taken so long? And what's the best way to help former servicemen have a smooth transition to civilian life? The man in charge of coordinating the flood crisis military response, Major General Patrick Sanders, says he's got 2,000 troops on this operation and clearly from what we've been seeing today, he needs them. Our reporter Tim Cooper is out and about in the floods in Surrey. Whereabouts are you, Tim? Well, Kate, I'm standing by the River Thames right now in Chertsey, looking at the bridge that's in Bridge Road, the road where the army have been working today. The water is flowing through at an incredible rate, and if I turn through 180 degrees, there's pretty much flooding everywhere, so you can see the danger that these houses are under. Let me tell you what's been going on today. At about uh, quarter past nine this morning, I joined a team headed up by the Royal Gurkha Rifles who left the fire station in Chertsey, which is their command centre, set out here for Bridge Road, and they've been distributing sand bags and helping residents protect their houses as best they can. The residents that I've been speaking to are certainly extremely keen and, and pleased to see the army here. And, and I will say they've all said how you know, how the guys have been very happy in their work, keen to help and uh, putting it all together as best they can. The, the man who's been uh, leading the early part of the operation is Captain Barry Cork from the Royal Gurkha Rifles. He's with me now. Barry, how's it gone from your end? Uh, I think uh, so far so good. Obviously, just a couple of hours uh, uh, completed this morning. But uh, again, a good response uh, from the residents uh, that we've been assisting. Uh, obviously, a lot of them quite concerned with the possibility that uh, the waters may well rise uh, in the next couple of days. But uh, we've been providing assistance. The guys have been helping sandbag up the houses uh, and reassure the locals that uh, we are here to uh, to help them out. And, and for some of the guys, it's been it's been a lot of work over many hours as well, isn't it? Yes, there's been a, a number of guys uh, out for uh, over 12 hours uh, uh, working on similar taskings. But again, you know, they're keen to help and, and get around uh, and give support to the locals uh, who are obviously uh, feeling the effects of this flooding. Lots of sandbags have gone out. We've seen houses that had no protection, but yet are within a few feet of being flooded out, have protection put in place this morning. What are we going to see for the rest of the day for your folks? Uh, for my team and the rest of the guys that are, that are on site here, uh, we're looking at really um, continuing the sandbagging on the most vulnerable houses to the north side of uh, Bridge Road and then uh, assisting the Environment Agency with putting in an aqua dam which will uh, help protect the, all the houses to the south of uh, Bridge Road. I mean, this has been described as an unprecedented natural event. In your experience, have you seen anything like this before? I personally haven't been involved in anything uh, like this or on this scale before, no. Pretty tough work. Thank you very much indeed, Captain Barry uh, Cork, for letting us uh, witness what's been happening here in Chertsey. Of course, Kate, one of the many places along the River Thames and in other parts of the country that are suffering from flooding, but here at least the army are out trying to do the best they can in incredibly difficult circumstances. Back to you. Tim Cooper there reporting from Chertsey. So how do you coordinate both the military and civilian emergency response teams in a situation like this? Who takes the lead and how does it all work? David Livingstone, Associate Fellow at Chatham House, is an expert in emergency planning. Earlier on, I asked him if he thought the authorities were handling the situation properly. 
Well, I'm sure the authorities are doing their, their absolute best, but remember that a lot of this is trying to understand, uh, you know, what are the capabilities of the military once you have a picture of the emergency involved uh, and what can the military do. Now, this is where sometimes there is a disconnect because sometimes the, um, especially if this, these uh, emergencies haven't been exercised uh, before, is that um, the people in charge of the response, who normally are the sort of the, the civil authorities, um, you know, they try to over-direct the military in what, you know, in, in terms of what they need in terms of boats or rafts and things like that. The real um, way that the military works is, is this thing called mission command, which is what I need to do is this, please fix it. Uh, and the military is absolutely fantastic then of delivering that uh, effect into into the emergency involved. So, but eventually, uh, these things always sort themselves out in exercises. Now into real operations, it takes a little while before that understanding, um, understanding sort of is, is, uh, is created between the two sides. So it's a matter of not over, over sort of um, being over explicit in what you, what you want, but it's actually what you're trying to achieve. And then the military is absolutely you know, perfect for that. So how is someone from the civilian side supposed to deploy the military? What would you recommend they do, an emergency planner, for example? The first thing to do, of course, is to, is to get the, the, the top staff in. Um, the, the, these would be, you know, the commander in charge. And then, uh, again, I would state is, you know, what are you trying to achieve? And, and let me then go and, go and sort, sort out, you know, how to do it. But it's to get the military in as early as possible um, because quite a lot of the response can be formed around what the military can do rather than the military having to almost backfill some of the gaps in terms of, you know, what is being provided by the local authorities or police, fire and ambulance and so on. So the earlier you can bring the military in, the better. Um, although, of course, you, you don't know you're going to use, uh, use the military perhaps until the emergency has got, uh, the situation has got to a certain stage when you say this is now beyond our, our capability. Uh, to resolve, but the military is fantastic at providing this sort of disciplined, um, uh, you know, sort of body of, of uh, men and women who are able to provide, you know, immediate uh, manpower into into providing sort of kind of heavy lift and, and getting on and doing the job, um, and that they can do almost autonomously. Of course, in many respects, um, you know, the military people involved actually enjoy doing this, putting something back into the community and feeling they've really contributed to. Uh, the, to the people in distress, which is what, of course, we observe now, uh, you know, obviously throughout southern England and, and further north too. David Livingstone, Associate Fellow at Chatham House. Well, our Defence Analyst Christopher Lee is with me. Hello, Christopher. From what David said there, it seems to me that the military just weren't involved soon enough. You should have the military not simply soon enough in the operation when it happens, but the uh, as there was at one time uh, a plan that... Even when somebody says, I think we can get lousy weather, and we've known about jet streams being in the wrong place, etc., for months before it actually happened, that's when the military should have been brought in. There used to be a plan that was, that was run up at the Home Defence College in, in Easingwold, which did exactly uh, this. And, and what, why was it dropped then, this plan? Uh, because it went to the Cabinet Office, it was put under privatisation, and it looked at emergency uh, uh, measures, and it's done it rather well, but it looks in, in fictitious uh, form, and it's also now largely uh, making its money by teaching other people to do the very things that we're not always doing ourselves. I mean, if you, if you, in, if you go much a stage further than David Lingerson went then, think about using the 
territorial, or the reserves as they are they're called, and giving them that role and writing it into their terms of reference, get it approved by Prime Minister and, and Chancellor of the Exchequer. There's no point in doing it through the Ministry of Defence because they'll be seen just as job-stretching. <coughs> job and then simply say, divide or split United Kingdom into 11 regions, which was the original idea, and you have a military unit which is responsible for those. You know the people, you're in touch with them all the time, mm. and you know where you fit in. It's an interesting idea. Do you think that what's happening at the moment is a bit of a, a change in attitude, that from now onwards there will be this kind of thinking going forward? Uh, I think the thinking is already there. But what will happen, it will come to a higher level. I mean, for example, uh, General Sanders. He was at the COBRA meeting, the mm. Cabinet Office uh, um, uh, Committee, uh, which is unusual. And he was saying, sitting actually next to the Prime Minister and with the Deputy Prime Minister having to go to the other side of the table. <laughs> and he was saying this, this is what we've got, this is what we can do, you just tell us... The, give us the time and tell us when to do it. Now, the problem is, so the army turn up, and local council says, you're not having that, lad. We're in charge here. Uh, and the Prime Minister did actually step in this week and said, look, if you want them, ask for them, you'll get them in terms of the military help. Yeah, but... Was that a, a secret message almost, or a, a saying to the council, come on, use strong these? Enough. It wasn't a strong enough message. And I'm not sort of blowing the, you know, just sort of beefing the case for the for the army to do this. And don't forget the other two services, very much involved. They've got helicopter shift, they've got uh, amphibious uh, systems, etc. What is enormously important is to write into the terms of reference in the 11 military districts as they would be, goes back to the Civil War, actually, 11 different uh, uh, military districts, and you say, this is the army's role. And this is the state when you bring them in. And then the most important thing is who's in charge? Where's the chain of command? Forgetting not that the army's should, should got the best communication... Should there be a new communi- kind of, change of cha- a chain of Absolutely. command in this situation? Yes, very easily to, uh, d- a, a to determine of that. whom, exactly? Well, you, 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 what you do, you have somebody who is going to be chairman of it. And much better, much better say you are the emergency planning chairman. Now, I mean, that exists in some form, but without the authority, without because he, all he's doing half, most of the time is fighting other people. Remembering the army's got the best command, control and communication system in the whole of the United Kingdom and at regional level, it knows how to do it. I think there'll be a lot of debriefing after this whole episode is over. Christmas, stay with us. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, the Greek and Turkish leaders of Cyprus make a joint declaration on the island's future and why those with short military careers seem to suffer most with the transition to civilian life. This is BFBS SITREP. American and Russian officials are to join peace talks in Geneva a day earlier than expected to try to break the deadlock between the Syrian government and opposition. Over the past week, the UN has evacuated 1,400 people from the ruins of the old city of Homs, but no further operation is planned today. Earlier, I spoke to Kat Carter from Save the Children's Syria Emergency Response Team. I asked her how successful the evacuation had been. Well, I think that depends really on your sort of definition of success. I mean, it's very limited numbers coming out of Homs. And from what we've seen, you know, it's mostly uh, women and children. And of course, what we need to remember is that anyone that's inside Homs that can move, any civilians, will certainly want to be evacuated. They will certainly want to leave. So those people that remain are people who physically can't move, whether mentally or physically. They have to stay inside Homs. And they're the ones that Save the Children are really worried about. And what do you know about the situation inside Homs itself at the moment? I've spoken to a lot of people who've actually fled from Homs over the last six months, really. Um, And it's a really dire picture. You know, I spoke to families who were forced to feed their children leaves. Um, Over winter, I spoke to families 
families who'd actually melted snow um, so that their children would have water to drink. You know, it just paints the most bleak picture, absolute lack of medicines, even basic things like painkillers. You know, in every way, uh, these families don't have the things they need to survive, which is why the people that we're seeing actually leaving homes look in such a terrible condition. And for those who have managed to get out, how long is the, most of them heading to Lebanon, how, how long is the journey and how precarious? Well, as the sort of crow flies, as it were, it's about 30 minutes drive. Um, so it's actually very close to Wadi Khaled, which is up in the north of Lebanon. But of course, it's actually a very precarious journey. There, there might be numerous checkpoints. Um, lots of the people that I spoke to who've left, um, I mean, they had a really difficult journey. They saw people being killed on the journey. They themselves were targeted. We're talking about women and children here as well. Um, they've had a lack of things to eat. Lots of the families were weakened by months and months of being under siege. So they found the journey incredibly difficult unless they could find a lift. And of course, fuel is at an absolute premium inside Syria because it's so difficult to get hold of. So most people would be walking. They probably wouldn't come straight across the border because it would be too difficult. They'd probably go to another village um, along the way. Obviously, given that most of the people getting out are women and children, families are being broken up. What can be done about that and how can they keep in touch with those left behind? Yeah, they are being broken up um, and that's probably one of the most heartbreaking things. And there's lots of different ways that families get broken up in things like this, in conflicts. One is that they actually choose to break up. So, for example, the father or the older um, boys and males of the family, they might stay to try and protect their home while the, they'll actually send the women and children away or the alternative is actually keeping women and children inside Syria and sending the men out across the borders so that they can report back whether or not it's safe. So, for example, in Lebanon, there were lots of men who were going there to say, OK, will I be able to find work? Will I be able to support my family? Is it worth uprooting my entire family from our home? And then, of course, there's the more heartbreaking separation, um, which I came across time and time again, which is when families actually lose their children in the rush to escape. So lots of families who run when their homes are being shelled, they run and decide to flee sort of then and there and they get into a vehicle um, and they lose track of some of their older children. For example, they might have been down the road playing with friends or, you know, teenagers around each other's houses and they have to make that devastating choice. Do they stay while their home is being shelled and everything is death and destruction around them? Do they stay and try and find their, their one missing child or do they escape to protect the lives of their remaining children? You know, and that's just a heartbreaking decision for any mother to make, but so many women have made that decision, you know. And can you do much to help people get back in touch or remain in touch with their, their relatives from whom they're separated? Absolutely. There are things that um, aid agencies can do. So one thing that Save the Children is doing um, across the world, actually, in conflicts, not just inside Syria, something we call family tracing and reunification, which is tracking down particularly children that come across borders unaccompanied, tracking down their extended family. Now, Syria is a little bit different in that, you know, these people are very much like you and me. So they have mobile phones and where the phone network is working, they'll often have, for example, one mobile phone in a village and then everyone will use that to try and contact people outside so it's a little bit easier for them to track each other down of course if the phone network is down then you know it is real chaos um, so people come across the border desperately trying to find where their families are in you know really quite a big area so they'll go from village to village trying to track them down and that's definitely something that say the children other aid agencies can help with and the situation in the camps in lebanon at the moment how is it the situation in Lebanon is pretty, it's pretty troubling, actually. Um, I think the problem is, is that the, the sheer number of refugees coming across the borders isn't letting up. So we're seeing thousands and thousands come across and the aid efforts simply can't keep up. You know, we keep putting more staff in, we keep trying to get more aid out there. But every time I go back, you know, I go in and out quite frequently. 
every time I go back, there's a new refugee camp that's sprung up. Um, you know, people are staying in garages. It's very difficult to find refugees because they're staying in underground lots or half-damaged buildings. So you have to literally go door to door, which is a very, very large and expensive aid effort, and the money simply isn't there. And of course, what we have to realise is that until this conflict actually ends, or at the very least until we're able to get more aid into Syria so people aren't feeling the need to flee so much, that tide of refugees is just not going to stop. Kat Carter from Save the Children speaking to me earlier and uh, talking about until this conflict ends. Christopher, American and Russian officials joining these peace talks in Geneva a day earlier. What can they achieve? And can this deadlock actually be broken? Nobody knows what they can achieve. We know what they're going to try and achieve. And that is hold the parties together and say, look, don't go. You know, don't don't leave now. The history of talks like this uh, is that they could go on for a year, they could go on for, go on for ages. But there are two things that are are changing the picture from the Americans and the Russians see this in particular. One is that the so-called rebels, the non-Islamist rebels, if you like, uh, the ones that we support, have persuaded some of the fighters to come as or have representatives as, as delegates. So you can't accuse, in theory, you can't accuse the, the, the people that are at the talks of not representing anything. The other thing that's happening uh, is suddenly there is a big movement among the Kurds now, nobody's taken much notice of the Kurds, but it's, it's extraordinarily important. They're siding with the Turkmens. Now, who we got? The Kurds? The Turkmens? We thought this was just about sort of Islamists and other guys versus Assad. This is likely to break up the whole region because the Turkmens, for example, are in, and, and the Kurds are in big numbers in Syria. They then go into Afghanistan, they then go into Pakistan, and they are in Iran. And the important thing here is the Americans are saying these people could screw up these talks by putting in sort of objections, by pulling people out, and that's what they do. They can't afford that to happen. All right, more talks now, because this week the Greek and Turkish leaders of Cyprus have presented a new agreement on the island's future. The joint declaration, the two in it, the two sides said they would work towards a two-zone federation to unite the country. Earlier I spoke to Carla Prater from our studio at RAF Akrotiri in Cyprus, and I asked her to remind us about the history of the island. Cyprus has been divided for 40 years after Turkish soldiers landed on the island in 1974 following a Greek-led coup. The island was torn apart by fighting and today the two sides remain separated by a buffer zone which is monitored by the United Nations. 28 Engineer Regiment and 3 PWRR are among the British contingent involved in that mission today. Now efforts to get the two sides talking to reach an agreement has been ongoing ever since. This is not the first time they've issued joint statements statements or being seen to make progress. Negotiations have broken down many times before. In 2004, the UN presented the Annan Plan, a proposal for reuniting the island. A referendum was held and 65% of Turkish Cypriots approved it. 76% of Greek Cypriots rejected it. What's different now is that this is an agreement the two sides have both made together. So just tell us a bit more about this joint declaration. What are the details? Well, this was the first meeting in a year and a half between the two sides, a very sensitive and st- in a very sensitive and strained negotiation process. On Tuesday, the Greek Cypriot leader Nikos Anastasiades and the Turkish Cypriot leader Dovi Sharolu arrived at the United Nations protected area. They arrived separately and were ushered inside by the chief of the UN mission, Lisa Buttenheim. And they talked behind closed doors for about 80 minutes before emerging in front of the nation's press with an agreement at last. Lisa Buttenheim delivered the joint statement 
statement, and she outlines seven key points, which are the principles both sides have agreed in order to resume talks. Both leaders acknowledge the current situation is unacceptable, and they agreed a set of hopes for the future, plans for a bi-communal, bi-zonal federation under one united Cyprus. So the outside world would see a single Cyprus, a single legal personality and sovereignty, but internally it would maintain two constitutional states. But the leaders stressed nothing is agreed until everything is agreed and acknowledged there would be a long road ahead. So what has the reaction been, Carla? Well, the press have yet to be convinced whether this is actually a fresh start or another chapter Mm. in a never-ending battle. In today's Cyprus Mail, an article says, the question on everyone's lips is whether the promising start to negotiations will end in tears yet again or whether this time there is a real chance of success. It points out that since the days of the Annan plan, Cyprus has changed a lot. As we know, last year it suffered an economic crisis. Oil and gas has been discovered. Turkey's entry into the EU has stalled and its relationship with Israel has developed and now the international community is watching this whole corner of the Med much more closely. Now, the President of the EU Commission, Britain and the US have welcomed these developments, saying it's an important step forward. But within Cyprus, it's not been all approved. The opposition party is on board with the idea, but the coalition partner, Thico, opposes the declaration and so does the Socialist Party. There is confusion about the wording of the statement as well. But representatives from both Turkish Cypriot and Greek Cypriot sides are meeting this week to take negotiations further. And that's when the hard work really begins. Mm, And should this hard work actually result in some concrete agreement and some progress, will it make any difference to the British troops who are based on the island? Well, let's not jump ahead too far. We're still a very, very long way off a full agreement and unification at this stage. British Forces Cyprus is is not involved in these negotiations at all. The presence of British forces on the island remains in agreement with the Cypriot government in the south. And even if unification went ahead, that's very unlikely to change at this stage. There are many nations that have interests in Cyprus, but this is a Cypriot issue, which the Cypriots and only the Cypriots can resolve for themselves. But of course, British forces, like the rest of the world, will be watching developments closely. BFBS reporter Carla Prater talking to me from Cyprus. Christopher, she mentioned there the discovery of oil and gas. Sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, we shouldn't throw it away either. I've been talking to the people at Noble Energy and also to the Israelis. Noble Energy are doing a big deal in Cyprus, Eastern Mediterranean. The Israelis? Uh, Well, yeah, there's two lots. Uh, What's happening is that the Americans have latched on and have got an interest, financial interest as well, in uh, oil exploration in the eastern Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Now, this involves Turkey and Cyprus, but particularly Cyprus. They've guessed at the moment there's 3.7 billion barrels of oil there somewhere. Uh, 200 cubic metres of natural gas. You then switch down to the Israeli coast, and then the Leviathan field, that's even bigger. And what's happened, very quietly, the Cypriots and the Israelis have joined together in a company to explore that. Now, here comes the tricky part, and this is the uh, the most fantastic part of it. To get that oil out, it has to go overland, Mm. which is the only country it can go overland that ain't at war at the moment, Turkey. So the Americans are saying, right, you guys, there's dollars in this. There's real money in this. We've got to pull this together. And that (laughs) is one of the sort of things. So the unification of of Cyprus could be down to oil and gas exploration, you're saying? Well, I will tell you that two-thirds of the Middle East, its future has, or its past has been, and its future stability is dependent upon the way you shift oil and gas out of that region. PFBS Zip 
A report into servicemen and women leaving the armed forces says more needs to be done to help those who leave after a short career in uniform. Lord Ashcroft, the former deputy chairman of the Conservative Party, was appointed by the Prime Minister to look into the problems faced by veterans. I'm joined now by Ed Parker, co-founder of the charity Walking with the Wounded. Hello, Ed. This report has suggested veterans are widely seen as damaged by potential employers, an image that prevents them from making a smooth transition into civilian life. Do you agree? Um, I fear that he is correct in, in making that assessment, and I also totally agree with the report when he says that those leaving are a great asset to society. And what do you make of the, the public image and the effect that this has then? How do you try and combat that? Um, I, well, I think it's something that... I think there's two elements to this. I think it's created, one, by the armed forces not engaging effectively uh, with Corporate UK to explain the quality of individuals that they've got within their ranks. I think the other thing is a lot of charities are maybe over-inclined to, to paint a, a somewhat worse picture than there actually is, which they, they need to do in order to raise money. Um, I think the thing that we all need to do is, as within this report, is just to champion these people, actually say, you know, acknowledge their strengths. Um, but you know, some of them, in the case for walking with the wounded, those who have been wounded, do need some support. And what kind of people do you get coming to you? You talk about the kind of support they need, because there are cases, aren't there, where there is a difficulty in transition into civilian life. Yes, there is. I think one of the issues is a lot of people leaving um, don't actually know what exists out in the workplace. And it, one of the key elements that we try to do is provide transparency in the workplace uh, and provide opportunities whereby people are able to see what lies out there. Another point that's being made, um, I know that uh, this report actually says that, that people who've been in the forces are not at any greater risk of perhaps turning to crime than anyone else in society, but you have some specific um, experience of, of helping people who have. Yes, and I, I'm, I'm not able to sit here and say whether it's more or less veterans in, um, uh, than in prison or homeless than the, the rest of society, but there are veterans who are both within the criminal justice system and who are homeless. And as an organisation, uh, Walking with the Wounded is there to try and support them and, uh, and assist them back into, uh, back into society. I mean, I suppose um, if Lord Ashcroft is right and that the people who've been in the armed forces are at no, are at no greater risk than other members of the community of, of these problems of homelessness, for example, or post-traumatic stress disorder, why, why do you think there is so much help from the military? And, and, and is it right? Well, I think this is how it has historically been. Um, when people leave the armed forces, the, the government doesn't continue to financially support them, and it's ever been thus, and, and charities exist to do that. Um, and I think it's a system that works fairly effectively. Christopher? I, I don't want to be sour about this, but I took part in a discussion about three or four weeks ago. And, for example, um, a lawyer was saying, when you see in court a soldier who's gone wrong, done something wrong, then public opinion is very hard to t drag them away from the idea that, oh, what do you expect from these guys? We, 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 we train them off to go, to go and kill people, etc. They come back and they get, get in a fight in a bar. That's the sort of image which you'll not get rid of. The other side of it was, was very disturbing, and that was amputees. A group of amputees had been sent down to uh, Roehampton. They were getting uh, fitted with arms, legs, etc. They were saying that the army people coming back from Afghanistan, they are getting priority treatment when it comes to money, etc., and that they tell other people. That, again, turns things sour. It's almost as if somebody's got to get a whole grip on this, and what, do you, what are you trying to do uh, with, with, with expressing 
the special case for the services because they do have a special case because they're mm. in the public opinion's mind, whereas the civilians aren't in public I opinion mind. I suppose what you do, Ed, though, is kind of a positive image because you're seeing people on expeditions doing something really good and, and achieving uh, great challenges. Yes, I, I think um, th there are two elements to this. As obviously, Lord Ashcroft's report is about the whole veteran community, every, every service leaver, whether wounded or otherwise. From our perspective, our focus is just on that wounded cohort. And our ethos is to very much to be looking forward and to do it from a, a glass-half-full perspective. I think Christopher raises a very good point that one or two people who um, can create quite a lot of noise in the media do end up creating a perception for the wider universe. And I think the way of overcoming that is, is greater information coming out of the armed forces and the Ministry of Defence to explain to people the process and those who are within the process. All right. Ed Parker, there we must leave it. Ed Parker from Walking with the Wounded, thanks for your time today. Um, Christopher, before we, we finish today, let's have a quick look ahead to next week. What should we have in our diaries to look out for? Well, it's a long way away, but look at <laughs> North Korea look at North Korea, is talking about doing a nuclear weapons test, a testing of its long-range missile. Um, and this happens at a time when the Americans and the South Koreans are on exercise together. But there's an irony in all this. The North Koreans and the South Koreans are starting to talk commercially. What's going on that we will never, never properly know until it's all finished? And that's it for today. Thanks for listening. We'll be back at the same time next week. But from now, from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Sports, sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS.